So it was interesting that how the show went. I mean, I know I just made that little comment at the beginning, but I thought it was fascinating to hear what you had to say about Israel. I'd never heard any of that. Well, I, yeah, I wasn't expecting to talk about that, but that would be a, um, you know, I mean, what what they wanted was that we would all come back and become, you know, very strong supporters of, of Israel, which and I would put it this way. I think I came back from that experience with some degree more sympathy for the Israeli and Palestinian positions that I had before. It wasn't one of the things that replaced it with another one, but it, it, it certainly gave me a much more, you know, you really saw how this worked out with real people in real life. Mm-hmm. And in real life, sort of. Mm-hmm. And, and how this sort of you know, affected it. I'm getting feedback here. I'm getting okay. feedback here. Okay. I thought it was refreshing to hear your balanced sort of synopsis of what's going on there, Rick. It was uh, so many people are either afraid to state what they even think is just a fact or uh, for fear of being sort of, you know, pursued. Or on the other side, uh, obviously being very biased is the other way a lot of people go. But I thought what you gave was very, very refreshing. Well, that's what I, that was my impression. It's not necessarily the cosmic truth of anything, but those with it, that was the impression that I had. And it was, uh, no, I really count it as a very, very interesting experience and uh, eye-opening in a lot of ways. I've, I've visited uh, Jerusalem quite, and Haifa quite a few years ago, a long, long time ago. But I mean, it's obviously very different now. So I have a, a sense of a flavor of what it was like. Uh, but on the other hand, I was just on, you know, a sheep on a conveyor belt as a tourist at that time and just uh, visiting some sites and taking it in. But uh, one of the questions I was thinking of asking in the show, which I, I didn't get the chance to, I didn't make the chance, is... Um, I remember there was a, a big uproar, uproar, um, and also yeah, a few smiles as well when Trump moved the U.S. embassy to, to Jerusalem. And I was just curious, did it stay there when Biden came back in, or did he actually move it back to the original building? I mean, is it is it something which is ongoing? You know, that's a, that is an interesting question. I don't think it's been moved back. I'm not sure they've ever totally completed moving. I suspect there are probably things still going on in, in Tel Aviv. It, to some degree, reestablishing in Jerusalem is a, it's very important as a symbolic action. Mm. Because, uh, they, you know, they, the standard Israeli view is that Jerusalem should be the capital and therefore the the embassy should be there. Um, and, you know, it's usually, I, uh, that's not one of the things I think Biden would would likely go back on. Um, mm. How much of that, that, that's a kind, that's, that's a real change or it's a symbolic change is, is kind of interesting. I so think there, cool. It was changed, and it had a lot to do with the Abrahamic Accords. Uh, I don't, I don't really understand the whole relationship, but I know it had to do with the Abrahamic Accords and that somehow it was tied to that. And it's still there in Jerusalem. So that's all I know. That's, that's yeah, I mean, it hasn't been moved back, I, but I would suspect that there's probably still a lot of the basic day-to-day work is being done, mm. being done in Tel Aviv. But, you know, Jerusalem is one of these places that a, well, you know, it's a magic city to different people. And this is why you've got you know, among the the ultra orthodox, 
uh, in Israel. Uh, there is this whole plan. You know, they, they, their ultimate desire is they are going to rebuild Solomon's Temple. Mm-hmm. Right? They're going to rebuild it. And they actually have this giant menorah. They already have this made that they're going to put in it. Wow. And now the problem with that, uh, it's probably known, is that uh, the, the ruins of Solomon's Temple are underneath the Al-Aqsa Mosque. Mm. So in order to rebuild the temple, you will have to destroy the second holiest site in Islam. Um which is one of the reasons why the Muslim authorities in Jerusalem won't, you know, you pretty much have to prove that you're a Muslim even to get into the mosque. It, it's not a deal. They will not let tourists go into it. And so you've got this whole, you know, the, the, the whaling wall in all of that area is, you know, that is essentially policed and controlled, um, by, by the Orthodox Jews. Um, and, uh, then there's a whole separate, you know, really this sort of long sort of walkway that winds around that and goes up to the the dome on the rock. And um but here again you got the idea is that from the standpoint of the of the ultra orthodox restorationists, we're just going to have to demolish this other obnoxious religious structure in order to create ours. Uh and of course the Muslims are not going to have anything to do with that. We are not going to let you rebuild that one. So it's fighting over this this same piece of territory. And on the one hand, that sounds silly, but on the other, I guarantee you that the partisans of those two positions are absolutely deadly serious, and I emphasize deadly serious, about what they want to do. I'm sure. I'm sure. I mean, I'm just thinking of parallels to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is not the only city in the world where you have multiple religions and cultures living in the same place. I mean, there are cities in the southeast of Turkey where, you know, everything is mixed in, in sort of harmony. I, 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 I say I've not been there. I've, I've only heard people's accounts of you know, having visited and taken it in. I have other people I've spoken with who, whose family originated from that part of the world. But, uh, you know, it, it's, we don't hear about the, we don't hear about the conflicts or the wars between the different religions and the different cultures in those cities. Um, but it seems Jerusalem is 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 a hot pot. It's it's a hot spot, I should say. But uh, yeah, the, the parallel that Kintia was bringing on as well about uh, Ukraine and Russia and about the various different types of people living in that area as well. I mean, that's obviously you know it, it it's it's like people move around everywhere. They always have, in my opinion, and some of them become families with other ones. Um, just through virtue of meeting other people and starting new relationships. But I mean, it's, it's a question of, it seems that whoever the leaders are, if, when it suits them, if it suits them to split, split the culture, split the people and to tap into the, or, yeah, broadcast fear and tap into their sort of reactions. Also, I guess it makes people more predictable when they know how they react. That makes so, it clear to her. Mm-hmm. Well, if you were to go back to 1991, the breakup of the USSR, and yes. at, at that time, the, the the kind of Ukrainian separatist nationalism was 
was very much a kind of peripheral movement. It was, uh, it still is, but it, you know, it was centered in the western portion of the country, areas that had been part of Austria, Hungary, and, and Poland. Uh, of course, it was rigorously suppressed by by the Soviets, but it it, it wasn't a mainstream movement. And you know, I think people then, of course, you know, we were talking about you know going back some decades at this point. Most people viewed that uh, it was it was kind of logical that you know, Ukraine and some sort of larger Russian construction had been were bound by religion, culture, and and history. So it made sense that that would continue. You know, that was the initial idea that the USSR would be replaced by the Commonwealth of Independent States, which would just become another, you know, the USSR under different management. But essentially what happened, uh, and especially uh, more so in, in this current century, is that Ukraine fell under the sway of very militant nationalists. You can call them Nazis or not, but... Uh, I'm not, I'm not sure they're – I think they like to play it being not. But they fell into the, into the idea of whose whole goal was to create the concept that Ukraine is and always has been an entirely separate entity from Russia, that Russia is in fact an enemy. Okay, mm-hmm. these, these people are not the same, that whatever the similarities are, they are enemies, they're – they're, they're Mongols, they're Asiatics, they're barbarians, there's a Western Slavic civilization, Ukraine is the center of it. Of course, they also hate the Poles as well, but they can't push that too far right now. And, and they're the ones who essentially got a hold of, of the state, uh, the military, and the schools in particular, where that curriculum, uh, beginning in 2014, was, was made part of the, of the, uh, of the school program. And you know, I, I think Joe's a pretty with a relatively short period of time. You can uh, affect the the. I don't think most Ukrainians necessarily think hold that idea deeply, but a great many of them that that's what they've been fed. You know, that's the the line that they get. That's what they're told that the reality is, and it becomes that way. Well, I mean, historically, the Ukrainians had the you know that's where the, the Nazis. Um, but remember back in the Hitler II, the really hardcore Nazis that even Hitler had to say, hey, you know, back down. They were in Ukraine, in that area east of uh, Kiev, mostly. Um, but at the beginning of this particular portion of the conflict, because it wasn't the beginning of the war, they've been in a war since, uh, you know, since uh, Obama had his little coup take place there with Victoria Newland. Uh, this is when the, the Education system, right? Uh, but yeah, they they have been uh, ruling the roof, but they're ruling over a bunch of ethnic populations. They have the Polish people, they have the people uh, to the South Belarus, and then they have the uh, Russians. There's not much of Ukraine there, really. And I, I if, if anything remains of Ukraine at the end of this, it would be the region right around. Yeah, and I don't think that's going to happen. I really think it's going to be split up between the three neighboring countries because it, it never has been declared a, a sovereign nation in the first place. That's another thing, you know, that nobody wants to look at. It's not actually a country. It's territory. Well, all of us, all of us neighbors have claims <laughs> on its territory. The Poles certainly have their claims on territory. Um, yeah, but it's, it's never, never, it never claimed itself its own sovereign nation, even with the U.S. It never did. Well, you know, it's, it's like most other countries. They're, they're just 
created. They get a certain elite, which then has a vested interest in keeping them around. Uh, you know, it becomes Ukraine Incorporated. And you have different groups who are essentially despoiling it in one way or the other, but as long as it's profitable them to do so, they'll, they'll do it. The big hero of Ukrainian nationalists is this guy, Stepan Bandera, who I think I talked about once. Yeah, yeah. And so if you're really yeah. curious <laughs> about that, you, you kind of have to look at And he's, he has an interesting history, I'll say that for him. But, That's one way to put it. Yes, hero or villain, you know, take your pick. But there you go. Well, guys. guys, I'm going to have um, mm. Yeah. Well, okay. Well, anyway, here we are. All right. So, well, thank uh, yeah. you. And uh, well, thank you. And a good weekend and a good week. And let's hope the world doesn't end before we talk again. Absolutely. It is. It's going to be wonderful. Okay. Okay. Good night, everybody. Bye-bye. Good night. Bye. Bye. Bye.